Let me say a quick prayer and we'll get started. Father God, thank you for your word. Thank you for your grace. Thank you for your love. Uh, Thank you for your Holy Spirit. I pray that you would uh, send your Holy Spirit to speak through me and to open the hearts of your people uh, so they could hear whatever you want to say to us through your word today. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Last Sunday, uh, Monica and I went to a living nativity. So Faith EV Free in Acton, they have the journey to Bethlehem, and it's like this living nativity set. And it was the first time Monica and I had ever been to this, uh, this nativity. And I know many of you went as well. We got there right about 6 p.m. I guess other people showed up there like half hour later, a little bit earlier, but the line was so long, you didn't really know where they were in the line, so we only saw the tangs actually as we were there. But if you haven't been, I'd encourage you to go. It is very, it's, it's beautiful, it's interesting, and uh, it has something to teach us about the journey to Bethlehem. So you go through this line. It was a little bit long when we got there, but eventually you make your way into the sanctuary. And in the sanctuary, there's, there's like these rotating scenes every five minutes that kind of set the, set the scene for the journey to Bethlehem. So uh, King Herod comes in, and there's a census that needs to be taken. And then there's a cut to music, and some people file out and other people file in. And then there's another scene where uh, uh, Mary hears that she's going to have a child, and uh, she prays, and then it cuts and goes to another one. And then Joseph hears uh, from the angel that he's going to have a son to name him Jesus. And then finally, we got out, and we began our journey. So you begin in the carpenter's kind of shed, Joseph's uh, old carpentry store, and there's another family there, and they're talking about the census, and you get a name. My name was Gilead, and Monica's name was Abigail, and you have to hold on to your paper uh, for the whole journey. And then a host family comes in, and they begin to lead you station by station from Nazareth, where you're located, down to Bethlehem. It's a fancy way of saying across the parking lot. Your, your, your way is lit, and it's, it's fun. And you, the first stop, there's like a map. Okay, this is where you're going to go. And then you meet some beggar children, and then you meet some guards, some Roman soldiers that made fun of people in our group for not knowing their own name. Uh, because you get your name, they're like, this is not your name. And uh, it, was, it was quite funny. And then you get to the Magi, the wise men. And as we got to the Magi, the wise men, uh, they pointed out the star. So I hadn't seen the star up until this point, which is kind of silly because it was uh, on the top of a tree. It was pretty lit up, and I, but I just didn't see it. And I, I looked at it, and I looked underneath it, and I couldn't really see where the nativity was. It was like shrouded in the dark. And so I figured, well, it must be on the other side of the fence. So I went on to the shepherds, and they have real sheep. I mean, this is high-quality stuff. Uh, there, are, there are real sheep there. And I, and I kept looking to see if I could spot the nativity because I had like this growing anticipation. Ah, we're going to get to the nativity. It's, it's going to be like this ultimate climactic event. And I kept waiting to see it, but I couldn't see it. And finally, we got to the, uh, the, the inn, and there was no room in the inn, uh, so we had to keep going. And we arrived at the, at the, the stable where Mary and Joseph and baby Jesus were waiting, and Jesus had just woken up, so that was kind of exciting to, to see him open his eyes. But when I got there, 
Uh, there was one word that just came across me as like how I felt. I felt completely underwhelmed. Just completely underwhelmed because I was expecting a big glorious scene with a like a just kind of spotlights and baby Jesus in a manger. I was expecting uh, to be like shepherds and magi, but I guess they don't arrive for like another three years, so uh, <laughs> they're not going to be there quite yet. And I was so excited, but I was completely underwhelmed. And the thought came to my mind that perhaps this was actually a little bit more how it actually would have been. <laughs> if you were there, on the day Jesus was born, unless you were a shepherd and you saw all the angels appear to you, you would probably be a bit underwhelmed because it's just a baby in a manger. And as we go through this series, maybe in some of your hearts the anticipation is building for the birth of Jesus Christ for Christmas Day. So this is the third week, the final week in our series. We're going to continue to focus on Christmas for the next couple weeks, but in a new series. But we've been looking at the signs of Christmas. Kind of we've been stopping along the path on the journey, and the anticipation is building. The first week we were in Numbers chapter 24, verse 17. We were looking at one of Balaam's oracles, a crazy guy. But he, he had this oracle that he gave, and he talked about a star and a lion, and how these pointed to the, the hope that we have in the coming Messiah. Messiah means anointed one, the, the coming king of Israel, the coming promised one. That we would have hope in him, but that ultimately he would also be a lion, and he would, he would bring about victory for God's people. That Jesus Christ is the light and lion of Christmas. And as we discovered this sign, perhaps your anticipation grew. You got a little bit more excited. Yes, Jesus, come. Looking forward to the nativity. And then the following week, we looked at Isaiah. So this was last week, Isaiah chapter 7, verse 14. We looked at one sign that's kind of broken into two parts. A baby will be born to a virgin. This baby's name will be Emmanuel, which means God with us. We saw how this is fulfilled in Jesus Christ. His name means Yahweh saves and he is indeed God with us because he was born of a virgin. His biological mother was Mary. And his biological father was not Joseph, but God. God himself. So Jesus himself is God incarnate. And that through this birth, God entered into our story. He entered into the story to rescue you and me through this amazing miracle. And perhaps the anticipation kept growing and you building for that coming day when Christ is born. And we certainly, we, we're, we certainly stand on this side of it. We can look back, but still the anticipation grows for kind of Christmas Day, for that ultimate fulfillment of that promise. These are miraculous signs that we just looked at. The first one teaches us really about Jesus as a king, that he's royal. And the second one told us that Jesus, that the Messiah was going to be a king who's also God, God and man. These are miraculous signs. So what would you expect? You would expect a kingly birth. You would expect a royal birth. You would expect like a thunder and lightning and like this divine uh, like opening of the heavens and baby Jesus stepping down. But Micah, he's a prophet in the Old Testament and he tells us that despite 
King Jesus' awesome and mighty origins. He has the humblest of births. He's not one who comes with all these amazing signs. He comes quietly. He comes humbly. Micah chapter 5 verse 2 says this. It says, But you, Bethlehem, Ephrathah, though you are small among the clans of Judah, out of you will come for me, one who will be a ruler over Israel, whose origins are from of old, from ancient times. See, the, the Messiah will be born in a quiet little village five miles roughly from Jerusalem, a humble town, a quiet town, an insignificant town. It's, it's, more, it's less like Beacon Hill, so Beacon Hill down near Boston. You know, you know that wealth and status, maybe some Kennedys are there. It's less like Beacon Hill and more like Dracut. I know some of you are from Dracut. <laughs> you can come back, it's okay. That's where our Messiah was born. That kind of place. Not the place of like regal births, but the place of births that no one cares about. In Bethlehem. So let's look at Bethlehem. That he will come, the Messiah will come from humble but royal beginnings. There we go. So he's going to be born in Bethlehem, the least likely of towns. And when it says in verse 5 that you are small among the clans of Judah, that's not really talking about like population or geographic landmass. It's talking about stature, about quality, that this isn't a place people go to make kings. Bethlehem literally means house of bread. So you would expect maybe a fantastic baker to come from Bethlehem, but you wouldn't expect a king. It doesn't mean house of kings. There's no palaces in Bethlehem. But in Micah's day, there, there was kind of a, a, a place where you would expect a king to be born. You would expect a king to be born in Jerusalem. Jerusalem's kind of the, ca- the capital of, of the southern kingdom. It's kind of like our Washington, D.C., In Jerusalem, there's Solomon's palace, there's the hall of pillars, there's the temple of God, there's all these amazing, beautiful structures. Kings are born in Jerusalem, that's where they begin, that's where they begin royally. But the Messiah's birth, Micah predicts, will be completely different than this. See, despite his birth, actually the Messiah will be more royal, or kind of truer to the origins of royalty, than all of these other kings that came before him. So there are many kings in the story of of Judah, of of Israel. Many of the kings were evil. Some of them were good. But Jesus is going to be more kingly than all of them. The Messiah will be. Because the greatest king, one of the the first kings, wasn't actually born in Jerusalem. So the, the second king, the first king was King Saul. He didn't turn out to be... Uh, a man that, that, uh, that obeyed God, that, that God uh, wanted to keep in that kingly role. So God appointed a second king, King David. And king David is known as a man after God's own heart. He wasn't perfect. He certainly did many bad things. 
but the Lord had his heart. And guess where King David was born? 1 Samuel 17, verse 12 says, Now David was the son of an Ephrathite named Jesse, who was from Bethlehem in Judah. So the the best king of Israel, the most famous king of Israel, was from Bethlehem. And here we see the prophet again saying, well, the Messiah is also going to come from the same origin as King David. For those of you who really know kind of your your Bible, in 2 Samuel chapter 7, God promises that a king will sit upon David's throne forever. So one of David's descendants. So it's only fitting that the king of kings, the Messiah, God's anointed one, would come from the same birthplace as King David. Now, uh, when the wise men come, I saw the wise men in this journey to Bethlehem. Maybe they were a little bit out of place. But when the wise men come searching for uh, the, the star, they've seen the star in the sky, and they come to find the king, the king of the Jews. And where do they go? They don't go to Bethlehem right away, do they? They go to Jerusalem. They go to where you would expect to find a king. And they find a king, King Herod, who is technically the king of the Jews. And they ask him, well, where is the one who's to be born of the king of the Jews? And Herod actually goes and asks the scribes and the chief priests. And and, and they quote Micah. Because they knew where the Messiah was going to be born. The Messiah was going to be born in Bethlehem. It's kind of interesting and sad that they don't actually go to Bethlehem to discover if the Messiah has been born. But they know where he's supposed to be born. Matthew chapter 2 verse 6 uh, is actually, actually quotes our passage today. Matthew 2 verse 6 says, But you, Bethlehem, and the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for Out of you will come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. So this is what the chief priests and the the scribes tell the the Magi. This is what takes them to find Jesus. It's the verse from Micah. See, the, the Messiah is royalty. He is the king of kings. He has a, a, a royal birthplace, a royal lineage, as we looked at a couple weeks ago. But he has humble beginnings. He has beginnings in a city that isn't famous, that doesn't produce rock stars. It produces bakers, if anything. Now, to kind of illustrate this point, I wanted to share an illustration that our preaching breakfast was kind of brainstorming a little bit this week. And I'm just going to put up a picture on the screen and and give you a moment. Yeah, there you go. Take a moment. So this is a cute little puppy. Now, our family was a dog family. Uh, you wouldn't believe that now because I kind of stay away from dogs. But at one point, we had at least three dogs. Uh, Monica comes from a cat family, so it's a miracle that we are uh, married. <laughs> Have you ever picked out a, a new puppy? What do you look for in a new puppy? You look for a puppy that's super cute. Maybe it looks a little bit like this, that's a little chubby, that's soft, that you can pet, that has like a little pink tongue that licks you, uh, that likes to yip really loudly at night when you're trying to sleep. You realize that after you get home. Now, what if you were looking for like a a show dog, a purebred? My brother uh, shows dogs in Colorado. He has a whippet. It looks nothing like this. If you want a dog that you want to show, 
you pick out like the strongest dog. You pick out a, a good dog, a, a, God, a dog that uh, is healthy. And you look for pedigree. So pedigree is a genealogical record that shows a dog is a purebred animal. Because there's no way you can guarantee how a dog is going to kind of grow and develop. But if you can find a dog with royal pedigree, with kind of good genes, you have a pretty good shot of getting a good show dog, a dog that you can take around and will do well in contests and win and get some points. So Jesus is, is uh, kind of like... Uh, he's a person that came from a royal lineage. So he, is, he kind of falls in that royal pedigree. But when you show up at the dogs, you're going to look for the best dog. You're not going to look for the weakest dog, right? You're not going to look for the dog that struggles. You're not going to look for the runt of the litter. And that's a little bit what Jesus looks like when he's born in Bethlehem. Yes, he has royal lineage. Yes, he has kind of this wonderful, awesome pedigree. But he's kind of the run of the litter. He's the one that you wouldn't expect. That, that, that you wouldn't automatically pick up and say, Ah, oh, this is going to make the strongest, best uh, Messiah king ever. You would say, no, this is the, this is the run. This one's uh, weaker. This one isn't as strong as the other dogs. This one isn't as, uh, as, as this isn't going to succeed as well as those other pups. See, Jesus is royal, but if you were present at his birth, you would be underwhelmed. <laughs> you would be unimpressed. You would say, wow, this is insignificant because this, this Messiah is born among the poor, among the peasants, among the outcasts, among the people that no one cares about. But the gospel, the good news, is that even though Jesus is born as the runt of the litter, he, he came to save other runts of the litter. He came to save other people that are the outcasts, that are the broken, that are the fallen. That when the world looks at them, they see nothing of significance. Those are the kinds of people that Jesus associated with all throughout his ministry. And those are the people that he came to save. I don't know about you, but I want a king, not, not who's raised in a royal palace, always told that he's an amazing king, that he's, he's, he's a royal prince and always given his way. I want a king that's, that's raised among the people, that's raised among the broken, the sinners, Christianity truly has the best king. Whenever you read those stories or kind of hear those fairy tales of the king that was raised among the outcasts, I think there's something in those stories that reflects the one true story, the story of Christ. And he invites those that are broken, that are weak, to recognize their own frailty, frailty and join his kingdom. Do you recognize your own sin? Do you recognize your own brokenness? Your own unworthiness? See, Christians aren't the best. <laughs> we're not the smartest. We're not the brightest. We're the kind of people who are underwhelmed by ourselves and recognize our own brokenness. And that's how you get into the kingdom of God. <laughs> You don't, you don't get into the, the kingdom of God by being a mighty hero. 
You, you, you get into the kingdom of God by, by trusting in someone else who walked humbly and, and confessing that you're broken and that you're this thing called sinful. <laughs> sinful is any time that we disobey God, any time we dishonor God with our words, with our actions, with our thoughts. Anytime we do something that we know would displease our Father God. And it's through this broken runt that we're forgiven. <laughs> because even though he, he, he came in like this, this unimpressive situation, he lived a perfect life and he had that royal lineage. And he went all the way to the cross to spill his blood, his royal blood, for our peasant blood. That's what Jesus did on the cross so that he could transform peasants into kings and queens. In God's kingdom, if you know Jesus Christ, you become, uh, you become one of the family. You become a part of the royal family. And the good news for those of us that already believe this message but struggle to believe it, to, to struggle to believe that we're a part of the royal family is that God uses us in his kingdom, that he takes broken people and he uses them to serve him. He can use you for good. That's what God does. The word Ephrathah actually means fruitful. So we have bakers and we have uh, fruitful people. To be fruitful in God's kingdom, we just went through this whole series, but some of the ways to be fruitful is not to be rich, not to be famous, not to be powerful, not to have a lot of, uh, of, of fame. The way to be fruitful in God's kingdom is to humble yourself, to be dependent on God, to have faith in Jesus and what he has done instead of our own works and our own actions. See, Jesus wants to use the broken, the runts of the litter, to, to, to do mighty things in his kingdom that don't look like mighty things to everyone else. How might Jesus use you in your weakness this Christmas? I believe God wants to use all of us in our weakness this Christmas. I, I, there's an opportunity tomorrow. We as a church are going to have a fellowship dinner, and, and then after that we're going to go Christmas caroling. If you want to see me in my weakness, come Christmas caroling tomorrow. That's an opportunity where you can serve God in your weakness. Now, next Saturday is what we call a big day where we try to invite our friends, people that don't know Jesus. I know that God is going to have to use me in my weakness to bring someone else to church because I can't convince anyone in my power. It's only through the power of the Holy Spirit. Who might you invite as you're dependent on God's strength instead of your own? You can also invite them to, to Christmas Eve. A lot of people uh, come to church on Christmas Eve. So Bethlehem has something very significant to teach us. It teaches us that the Messiah will have humble beginnings, but also royal beginnings. It's this, 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 there's this stretch, there's this pull, there's this dichotomy between those two truths, but both of them are true. But we can only understand how much Jesus humbled himself from what great heights he, he humbled himself if we look at the second half of the verse, where it talks about Jesus being from old, from ancient times. So I want us to look at this concept of ancient times or ancient days. And that the Messiah not only will come from a humble origin, but already comes from eternity past. That the Messiah, God's chosen anointed one, that he has eternal origins. 
In other words, the Messiah will not be created. <laughs> the Messiah will be conceived, but he won't, be, uh, he won't kind of enter into existence at the point of conception. So when you and I are conceived, that's when we become human beings, right? That's when you become a person. That's when we come into existence, to be or not to be. That's, that's when it happens for us. We be at our point of conception. But when Jesus was conceived by the Holy Spirit, he, he took on the human being, he took on the human nature, but he didn't take on his God nature. He already had that. See, he had shared in the being of God for eternity past. So if you think of the, the furthest amount of time that you can go back in time, a million trillion years, think even further, Jesus had always been as the Son of God. And so when he was born, he became fully man along with that fully God nature. And this is what the NIV is trying to explain. It's trying to point out when it says his origins are from old, from ancient times. I like the ESV's translation. It says uh, that he is one, the Messiah is one who, whose coming forth is from old, from ancient days. From ancient days. Now, a hundred years later, another uh, prophet comes named Daniel, and he refers to this ancient of days. So he kind of takes Micah's concept. Micah's right about 700 B.C., and, and, and Daniel comes over 100 years later and, and sets forth who this Messiah will be even in, in a more beautiful and a more awesome picture. Daniel chapter 7, verses 13 through 14 say this. And can you change that, please? Daniel 7, 13 through 14 says, I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man. And he came up to the ancient of days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion, which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed." So Daniel is connecting the one who, who comes from old, from ancient of times, with an actual historical person. He's connecting God, the ancient of days, with this other figure. And Jesus refers to himself by a name that we find in Jan Daniel chapter 7, verses 13 through 14. Can you pick it out? Do you know what it is? It's the name Son of Man. Matthew chapter 24, verse 30 says this, Then will appear in heaven the sign of the Son of Man. And then all the tribes on the earth will mourn, and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and with great glory. So this is Jesus. He's speaking of the final, his final return. And he's quoting from Daniel. He's adapting Daniel. He's saying, remember that, that Son of Man who is presented, who comes with the clouds and stands before God's presence? I am that son of man, and one day I will come back on the clouds, and I will judge everyone, the living and the dead. See, I am the son of the ancient of days. I am the ancient prince. I am royalty. I am king. I am the son of man. My, my big idea, my main point tonight is that the ancient prince he humbled himself, 
to rule our hearts. The ancient prince humbled himself in his birth and came to live among us to rule our hearts. Micah prophesies how the ancient prince will do this. It says he will shepherd his flock in verse 4. Verse 5, he will be our peace. Verse 6, he will rule the land of Assyria with the sword. Another way of saying this is that Jesus has come to be our shepherd. He has come to shepherd our hearts, to deliver us from danger, to deliver us from sin, to defeat sin and death. Assyria it kind of stood for Satan, for the enemies of God, for the enemy of God's people. The ancient prince will do this. He will deliver us from them, but how does he do this? Well, the ancient prince is stricken in our place. Micah is speaking in this passage to King Hezekiah. So last week we, we heard about Isaiah and King Ahaz. King Ahaz had a son named Hezekiah. And he kind of reaped the consequences of his father's actions. King Ahaz uh, kind of, uh, he, he aligned himself with the nation of Assyria, a global superpower that was unkind and militaristic. And eventually Assyria turned on King Ahaz and especially on Hezekiah and came to destroy uh, Jerusalem to capture the city. And Hezekiah should have died when this happened. So we're looking at, at 701 BC. See, when the city was surrounded by the forces of Assyria, he should have perished. He should have died. And Micah 5.1 kind of gives us a glimpse of this situation. Micah 5.1 says, Marshal your troops now, city of troops, for a siege is laid against us. They will strike Israel's ruler on the cheek with a rod. So this is, this is a description of what should have happened to Hezekiah. Hezekiah should have been defeated. Hezekiah should have been struck in the face. He should have been killed by the enemies of God's people. But God spared Hezekiah. You know why? It's because God knows there's a coming king that this passage is really talking about. There's a coming king who will be struck in the face who will take on the punishment that we deserve. Matthew chapter 26, verses 67 through 68 uh, say this. Can you go to slide 13? There we go. Then they spit in his face, and they struck him with their fists. Others slapped him and said, prophesy to us, Messiah, who hit you? Who does this refer to? It refers to Jesus Christ. See, he, he fulfills Bethlehem, but he also fulfills verse 1. Jesus is struck in the face on behalf of Hezekiah, on behalf on any who would trust in him, who would put their faith in him. See, in one sense, just like Hezekiah was besieged, he was held in captivity. Those, those enemy forces uh, were surrounding him, and the only place he could find hope in is God. That's true for you and me today. We're not surrounded by kind of militaristic forces, but we are surrounded by a world and a culture that says, you're not good enough. You can't know God. Come and, and, and follow us. Follow us. Be, be captivated by us. Join our forces. That's where joy is. That's where happiness is. 
come and, and worship the idols of this world, and we'll set you free. But Jesus knows that's not true. That no matter how much we desire the world, and how much the world calls for us to join it and its forces, that we'll never be happy there. The only way Jesus can deliver us is if he takes our blows, if he enters into our captivity on our behalf. See, Jesus came to set us free, (laughs) to set the captives free, to set Hezekiah free, to set me free, to set you free, to set us free from our addictions, our desires, our sins. Now, maybe you don't feel free this Christmas because you are bound in sin. Well, Jesus can set you free. That's the gospel. That's the whole news. Uh, The good news of Christianity is that the ancient prince came to set people like you free, to set me free, to come and to rescue us. If you don't know Jesus as your Lord and Savior, you are bound You're not free to do whatever you want. You are taken away in a storm. You are taken along in a flash flood doing what the world calls you to do. Jesus can come and rescue you and pull you out. He can do this because he enters into our captivity to set us free. He can take broken runts of the litter and transform us into people that know God, that love him, and are used by him. The ancient prince, he humbled himself to rule our hearts. That is, the, that is the message of Christianity. That is the gospel. That is kind of the, the point of Micah chapter 5, verse 2. As we end this evening, I want to end by sharing a children's book with you, actually, that I, I read this week. Uh, many of you know this story, or I assume that you've read this story. It's The Little Prince, The Little Prince by Antoine de Saint-Exupéry. I don't know if I slaughtered that or not. The little, he's a, a French author from, I think, the 1930s, the 1940s. I think he, he died in 1944, I think. The Little Prince is an imaginative book, imaginative book uh, that, that, that seems, so it's a children's book, but it kind of seems like it's written for grown-ups. And it's the story of a golden-haired little boy who's the prince of his own asteroid. So you can see it in the picture, and it's a tiny asteroid. And day by day, he lives on this asteroid, and there's a flower that shows up. And of course, this is a children's book, so the flower can talk. So this talking rose and him begin to form a friendship, a relationship. And day by day he comes and he waters the rose and he cares for the rose. But then the rose lies to him. The flower lies to him. And so he leaves. He's hurt by the rose. And he he, he leaves the planet and he eventually comes to earth. And he begins to travel around on earth. And while he is on earth, he meets a talking fox. And this talking fox loves the prince and wants to be loved by the prince, wants to care for the prince and be cared for by him. And he says, but the only way that we can be in a relationship is if you tame me. You have to tame my heart. The fox explains what it means to be tamed. To be tamed means to establish ties. See, if you tame me, we'll need each other. 
You'll be the only boy in the world for me, and I'll be the only fox in the world for you. He describes then what it feels like to be tamed, that when the fox hears the sound of footsteps, usually he will run away, but if he knows that they're the footsteps of the little boy, he'll, he'll come out eagerly. And when he sees a golden field full of wheat, he'll rejoice because it'll remind him of the one he loves. At, at this point in the story, the little boy, the little prince, he, he remembers the rose. He remembers the talking flower that wounded his heart and how she tamed his heart, that she caused him to fall in love with her and that he in his heart is tied to the rose on his little asteroid so far away. But in order to get home to the rose, he can't just fly away because kind of Earth's atmosphere, I guess, is too, too dense. He has to die. He has to shed his body so that he can fly home to his asteroid, to his rose. So he gets a yellow snake, a poisonous snake, to bite him in the ankle. And his spirit flies away and he's able to go home and to be with his rose to be with the one he loves. God created this world and everything in it. God created uh, this creation perfectly in a garden, the garden of Adam and Eve. It was perfect. There was no sin. And who introduced brokenness? Who introduced sin and hurt and famine? It wasn't God. It was me. It was you. It was humanity. We introduced that into the relationship. We broke our relationship with God. But even after all of that, even after we were separated from God's love, God, uh, God's, God's uh, perfection, God still allowed his heart to be tamed by us. God still saw us and wanted to be with us. And so God came up with a rescue plan because he wanted to rescue the ones he loves. The Ancient of Days sent the ancient prince to come and to be born in the most underwhelming way imaginable. A royal birth, but a humble birth. And that ancient prince, he grew up and he fell in love with the people of God too. But in order to rescue us, he had to pay the ultimate sacrifice. He had to pay the ultimate price. He had to die. Genesis chapter 3 verse 15 talks about, it's called the first gospel. And in it there's a promise that one will come, that the Messiah will come, and he will be bitten by a serpent in the heel, but he will crush the serpent's head. My friends, that's Jesus. That's the Messiah. He was wounded. Going through the torture of the cross, he was incredibly wounded, but he crushed the serpent. He crushed the yellow, poisonous snake, unlike the story of the prince. And it's through Jesus' death that he defeats sin, that he defeats the serpent, that he defeats evil, and he restores the broken relationship because he spills his blood. And through spilling his blood, he makes kind of atonement. He makes right everything that was wrong for those that are willing to put their faith in him. 
And the great news is, the gospel news, the news that's actually true and different, is that Jesus rises again. We're about to celebrate Christmas, and Christmas is incredibly important, but Easter is way more important. Because it's as Jesus rises from the grave that you and I are given hope that our deaths don't have to be the final ending. Now, if you don't know Jesus, or already if you do, Jesus is giving you an invitation tonight. He is inviting you to give him your heart, to allow him to tame your heart. Is that something that you might be willing to do? Maybe you've given your heart to Christ a long time ago, but it's grown cold. The relationship just isn't there. Well, you can give your heart to Christ anew. Give it to him day by day. Allow your heart to be tamed by Jesus, by the Messiah. Jesus invites us to give him our hearts. And if we do, I think we will find that he gave us his heart a long time ago. He first loved us. His heart was tamed for me and for you long ago. And you discover that love as you put your faith in him. The ancient prince, he humbled himself to come and to rule our hearts. That's what the ancient prince did. Do you know the ancient prince? He humbled himself to rule our hearts. Let's pray. Father God, thank you for sending your son to die in my place to live so that we might live. Help us to be grateful for everything that you have done for us this Christmas season. Father, I pray for the offering. Would you use our gifts, our meager gifts, to grow your kingdom? God, we pray that your kingdom would grow here in Westford, that people would come to know you as their Lord and Savior. We pray that your kingdom would grow in this church, that we would grow in our love for you, that our love for you would grow deeper and deeper and truer and truer. We pray that you would use our offerings, our our tithes, and our, our monies to do just that. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen.